thanks to the City of Brimbank across our neighbourhood and the world, Soul Dive with AD, Rashani and Lydia on Brimbank Live on Live FM. Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Soul Dive. We are your hosts, Lydia AD and Rashani. And today we are joined by Xavier Mulenga. Um, he has, I, I feel like introducing you might be tough, so I'm going to let you do it, but he's a qualified doctor, Zambian, li- Zambian living in Australia, and he's soon to be a psychiatrist. Um, I've actually met Xavier um, a few weeks back um, in another gig, and I just thought he was great. So um, we're bringing him on for the whole show. So this isn't a segment with Xavier. This is a whole show. <laughs> Welcome, Xavier. How are you? Hey, good morning, Lydia and everyone else. Rashani, AD, uh, it's a fantastic. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, keep it nice and short with the intro and bio. That's good because, you know, you me, I'm terrible with bios. Are you? Okay, would you have said anything different or? Um, oh, God, what would I have said? I said, yeah, initially, yeah, like I said, born in Zambia, came to Australia for mm-hmm. university. I've uh, been here for 16 and a half years now mm. and completing my psychiatry training. So like I said, yeah. Oh, beautiful. I think I captured almost everything. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning, um, ladies. Rishani, morning. Rashani and I saw you as well um, at an event that Lydia mm-hmm. hosted. So we're so excited to have you. Ah, you're yeah. so knowledgeable and yeah. we love listening to you. So I'm excited for our viewers to also get to hear. Yeah, very excited. Yeah, very excited to pick your brain as well. Um, I guess there are a lot of um, huge topics that I guess you are very knowledgeable um, within. So it's it's really going to be such a big and exciting show. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, for some context for the listeners, um, the show that we did um back two weeks back was a Sounds of Healing event um, where we basically discussed topics such as generational trauma, um, the hypersexualization of black bodies and decolonizing the mind. And Xavier joined us um, to talk about generational trauma, which I find to be um, a very interesting topic, one that I don't even think many have really opened, you know, at all. And I think it's it's great to see that, um, you know, in this time where a lot of people are having the conversations that are very taboo in nature. But then I realized from this particular event, like just looking at the topics that we covered that, whoa, <laughs> there are so many more topics that we haven't even like literally opened. So I just wanted to take a deeper look today into generational trauma. Um, and I guess we can just throw it straight to Xavier. This is going to be an informal conversation. Um, what, what is generational trauma? All right, no, no problem. So usually I like to break up the two words and start off with what is trauma first. Mm. You find a lot of people don't really know what it is, even though we hear it quite a lot. So if I was going to describe uh, trauma in the most simple of ways is it's a negative experience uh, that someone goes through. Mm. um, Usually can be in the form of physical, uh, sexual or emotional abuse. Okay, so examples being domestic violence, you know, sexual assault. Uh, people living with these very controlling uh, partners or controlling parents. Uh, and usually it's something that we experience firsthand or vicariously. So even you just being uh, indirectly connected can traumatize you. That's why yeah. we work as, you know, police officers or military, or not even military, let's say police officers, ambulance officers. Mm. When they arrive at a scene, it's a, you know, there's been some gruesome accident. Mm. They haven't been in the accident, but just experiencing that. Given right. Now, when we add it on to generational trauma, right, it's generational trauma essentially is just trauma through the generations. And if you look at a generation as being technically it's a period of 20 to 30 years, but it's easier to just think of it in terms of your family line. So mm. your, grandpa- your great grandparents is one line, your grandparents, you know, your parents, yourself, your children, and also yeah. those across, you know, cousins. And uh, but most people look at it like a very linear downward path. Mm. And I always tell people, usually the trauma we sort of talk about it coming from the top bottom. So your parents onto you, onto your kid. But yeah. it can go the other way up as well. You know, really? Just, yeah, and we just don't discuss it as much. So yeah. Kids can actually traumatize their parents, parents traumatize their kids, and you have this very negative circle that can happen. Mm. But mm. ease and simplicity, it's easier for people to think coming from the top down. Top down. What would be an yeah. example of bottom up? Like I could, uh, a mm. bottom up example, yeah. Okay, so a bottom up example could be you have, let's say, a mom who had abusive alcoholic husband, mm. forced, had you as a kid, uh, got raised, but let's say no fault of your own, or maybe due, due to role modeling, the kid now takes up drinking 
Mm-hmm. It becomes very abusive to the mom, gets older, and then now mm-hmm. starts abusing the mom, and they enter this cycle. She's now trapped with her child, or she trapped with her husband, ex-husband, and it, it gets very complex, but that's yeah. a realistic way just to... Yeah, no, that was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Younger generation causing trauma to the older generation as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess, yeah, like you said, most people would probably um, look at it as a top-down, but then the bottom-up is also a possibility. Do you guys have any questions based off um, these these um, definitions? Yeah, uh, I mean... Well, do you want to go first, Adia? No, I was just going to make a comment. I don't have a question. Okay. I didn't um, realise this top... Uh, wait, top... I have I, I've witnessed it within the community you know um, where some boys have been abusive to their parents or to their mother specifically hmm. and um, I just never put a name to it really so that's really mm-hmm. interesting to hear yeah yeah and, uh, just to add on to that if your mind is that you see it a lot when kids become um, adults so not adults teenagers you know mm. that's when you're sort of rebelling that's part of a normal development cycle you're trying to be yourself but you lack the emotional maturity to do it in a really uh, uh, sensitive yeah. way to your parents. Or, yes. Mm, yeah. So now you add trauma in the mix. That's when you find a lot of dramas. That's why people are getting kicked out of their homes when they're teenagers mm. or drug and alcohol issues developing then, sexual assault. They, they seem to start a lot earlier than we give them credit for. So mm. They might find someone who is using um, sexual assault for the example yeah. like someone who i'm treating at the age of 30 and they've come up to a sexual assault and they've been traumatized mm. usually if i go back i find that this has occurred as a theme in earlier years mm. not just came to me at 30 and that incident it's probably been a string of incidents that have accumulated with various negative coping strategies and just different things in the mix yes mm. yeah Absolutely. And I think that, yeah, yeah, it's really important, I guess, for people to understand that um, the trauma doesn't actually have to happen to you for you to take that on as trauma. You know, it can be vicarious. It could be kind of witnessing. And I think that, you know, when you brought up Mm -hmm. um, frontliners or paramedics or police officers, you know, they can also take on trauma from the work that they do as well. And I think that's really important um, that, you know, trauma is seen as something that's complex rather than like a black and white thing that kind of just happens directly to a person. It, it yeah. is, it kind of happens not just in a vacuum, but within, you know, with people around you and um, other people being impacted by it too. So that's really, really interesting. You think about as well, all of the professions um, that people work in that you could imagine a lot of trauma probably takes place because mm. in, in a lot of professions, people witness some crazy things. So um, it's, yeah, it's probably a lot more widespread than we really give it credit for. So I agree. It's much more complex. Um, you're listening to Soul Dive. This is Lydia, AD and Rashani. We're joined by Xavier Mulenga um, and we're talking about generational trauma. We've just defined it. Um, the next question would be, who does it affect? Um, can it affect anyone? Um, does it usually affect particular people in society? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So off the bat, to answer it in very general terms, can affect everyone, like any mm. single person susceptible to trauma. So, mm. And I think it's really bad when people try and, um, I guess, put it in tears, like, oh, no, this person got beaten up, or this person got domestic violence versus experience, and people start putting it in tears of which trauma is the worst. It affects everyone quite differently, but anyone can experience uh, the effects of, like, you know, any sort of trauma, generational trauma or otherwise. Mm. And the people who I find, everyone responds differently. So examples we tend to look at is, let's say, but two children in a household, there's domestic violence in this household. Um, one kid may grow up to be an uh, abuser himself. Another kid would grow up to be never hurt a woman in his life or something, or, or never hurt a partner in his life. You know, mm-hmm. so everyone, you, you can never really tell. Um, but usually the good prognost- uh, prognostic factors that, ensure, that sort of help someone get over trauma easier is A, They've got a bit of knowledge about them themselves in terms of mental health issues. Mm. Have they read up these terms? Because I think the more read up you are on just mental health and self-care makes you, it improves your chances of getting through things. Mm. Do you have any drug and alcohol issues? Like, do you cope with stress by drinking more or smoking more? That's cannabis or cigarettes or other things, you know, the meth ice is big now. Yeah. Uh, and also talk about what are your social supports like? And that everyone, I go, I first ask people about your siblings, what's your relationship with them, your parents, your community, and then also your partner. And also you can look at it from a broader perspective, your workplace. So I usually try and stratify, I really try and tease out, see how many social supports you are. 
Because some people can have really come from really abusive homes, but their community, their church, their friends, and their work are supportive. Mm-hmm. They have a chance of getting through it and they won't have as many issues to sort out in the future. Wow. So crazy because I just started to think about someone that I um, have known growing up. And in this particular family, there's two boys. One's um, about three, four years younger than the other. Um, the oldest might be a year older than me. And then the, the next one's probably, yeah, 20. But they grew up with a single mother who was an, um, had an addiction to alcohol. And I just watched how they went from really innocent, lovely children to one of them now being um, heavily um, addicted to drugs, hard drugs. And the other one completely, the older one, completely fine. Like just, and I guess I was thinking about the fact that they come from, even to this day, the same household mm-hmm. and how they've, you know, they've turned out completely different. And like you said, it could have been any of those things that they had outside of the house that served as a protection for one of them and not necessarily for the other. Wow. Yeah. AD? As well, I, I experienced the same thing, um, a household that I know who's, uh, their mom um, has an addiction to alcohol. Mm. And I think, yeah, some of them went down the wrong path. And then one of the boys uh, doesn't touch alcohol at all, doesn't touch any drugs at all. And I guess while we see that as good, I would also perceive that as a trauma. You know what I mean? Now they're scared to touch anything at all. They're Mm. scared to even experience that because they've seen the damage it causes Mm. Um, so I think there's opposite spectrums of trauma and how people deal with it. And I don't know if one is any better than the other. Cause I'm like, God, just have a drink. No, but that, <laughs> I think, I think we could argue that one is better than the yes, other. I, but, I, I, guess so, I guess so. But like how they're feeling inside. It's yeah. Mm, it's led true. by fear and, and, you know, yes. trauma. Let's yeah. talk about that, Xavier. What, what, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, that's good. That's something that I, I do notice as well. I definitely do think if you're not abusing drugs or alcohol, that's a, a positive of a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify. Yeah, AD. It's a good point that if Bad. energies aren't in those vices per se, are they being pushed in other domains? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's something you have to look for. And I've, I know personally, I've, I saw a friend who came from a very abusive household, abusive father, sadly, that's a common story, abusive father, you know, um, mother was just taking a lot of the abuse from everyone. But she told herself, never drink alcohol. And I met her when I was undergrad. So, you know, undergrad is where everyone's drinking. It's been mm. party. And we're just like, yo, you're not your father. Just have a drink. And she, you know, it's funny. Looking back, we we're just trash friends, I think, you know. But, <laughs> but she's still a friend today. Like I'm that trash people. friend. <laughs> <laughs> I saw even when I was in Brisbane for the show, I, I met up with her. And I was like, you know, I have to apologize for this. But I've known her for 40 years. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. She's known me for like 15 years in Australia. But I remember she still stuck it out with us as friends because we were good supports. We went out together on trips and I think got her out of that headspace. Mm. But something that did occur, even though there was no drinking there, she found herself like quite guarded and very vigilant about lots of things. So anxiety crept in to take on that. And mm. it took on the space of a bit of disordered eating, uh, not the full-blown eating disorder, but just very anxious, like the anxieties and the stress. She got into really poor relationships mm. um, because she wasn't able to see red flags per se. So you could argue, yeah, it does shift. But I think mm. when you take away alcohol... That too-in-control situation where you try and control everything around you so that you don't end fall up into like, the trap and you end mm. up, like, killing mm. yourself, trying to hold on to everything. Mm. And that's actually a good thing you stumbled across, uh, AD, is that people, that sense of control, and people who come from traumatised environments, you always hear them have a similar type of lingo, sort of say, like, I'm not going to be like my dad, I'm going to be better mm exercise i'm not going to get lung cancer like my father and smoke i'm just you know it becomes mm. this very tight expectation control and it's, it's it's too rigid you can't keep that up for too long yeah. but it's protective so i always tell people that the journey of trauma because I'm, I'm fortunate i guess i see people over years so mm. you see people when they start off get worse go through years of just really bad and then they come out the other side everyone's just got a different journey and it's kind of mm. hard to say how that journey would will go for everyone. So when someone mm. asks what's the normal trajectory or journey of someone's trauma, it's yeah. so subjective. Mm. I think what you have to do is keep writing support, keep picking them up when they go down and keep on being, um, like in psychiatry, use the term um, uh, eternal optimism. You know, mm. patients come to us when they're really in their worst state. Yeah. So we have to have this thing where, no, I've seen things get better. Even in the back yeah. of my head, I'm thinking, oof, things are pretty bad now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, yeah. it's gone up. 
Yeah. <laughs> Rashani, did you have something? Yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, and obviously, Dave, you spoke about the fact that the trajectory of kind of dealing with trauma is so different for, for different people. Um, what kind of happens when um, you are trying to kind of break the cycle of that trauma, but the trauma is still persisting with, with the people around you? Like, how does that process kind of look, um, you know, if you're not able to kind of remove yourself from, from the actual situation where the trauma is persisting? Yeah. And that's common for a lot of people, you know, as much as people say, it's like, oh, get yourself out of that situation. It's mm. a lot harder than people appreciate sometimes. And if mm. someone hasn't gone through that, they really have this very superficial understanding of like, no, just get out of that place. Move on. Get out yeah, that right. Um, but if so, it's your mom that's abusing you, how do you just up and leave? Right. Exactly. Someone that you love that you think, you know, the way they're treating you is, is the right way, even though you're traumatized as hell. Yeah. And and to answer that question, Roshani, it's it becomes a mixed bag. Because mm. you know? then you have to figure out how you're gonna maintain some sort of equilibrium in this war zone. And yeah, yeah. Good. And that's a, that's yeah. the best analogy I can use to it's like you know, when you got uh enemy troops, you know, you say soldiers fighting abroad that cross enemy lines, bombarded from all sides, but they say, mm. listen, we have to make the best of the situation because we can't easily get ourselves from it. Yeah. Mm. We are going to go to a break, guys. I know this conversation has moved like beautifully. I'm, um, yeah, we're going to go to a break and we're going to come back. You're listening to Soul Dive with AD Rashani and Lydia. We're joined by Xavier Mulenga. We're currently talking about generational trauma. Across our neighborhood and across the world, you're listening to Bring Bank Live. With thanks to the city of Brimbank across our neighbourhood and the world, Soul Dive with AD, Rashani and Lydia on Brimbank Live on Live FM. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Soul Dive. You are joined by Lydia, AD and Rashani. We have a special, very, very special guest with us. His name is Xavier Mulenga. He is a um, 2B psychiatrist, I guess. He's in training. Um, we've been talking about generational trauma and we're going to continue talking about it. We've kind of covered what it is um, and who it affects um, or who it, who it can potentially affect. And now I was hoping, um, Xavier, we could move on to how do we identify it? How do we identify generational trauma? Oh, that's a big one. Um, I guess everyone's got different, uh, I guess, signs and symptoms, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, usually by the time they reach uh, me in my capacity as mental health doctor is that they usually have some sort of mental, formal mental illness. But the first signs are usually very mild things, but they cluster together. So high anxiety, poor sleep, increased irritability. They tend to become more withdrawn from other people. Mm. Like even you can, you know, someone who's been in an abusive relationship or family DV, even you as friends will notice this person's moving away from you emotionally and physically. You know, they're hard to pin down, etc. They tend to have really violent mood swings as mm. well. You know, and it's like just sort of a touch of a hat, they just change things up. Some mm. people go through moments of confusion or what we call dissociation, where they sort of have these out of mind experiences where they just sort of zone out and blank out because that's yeah. how bad the trauma is. And um, it's, it's hard to say because sometimes they come together quite a fair bit, but they get masked with poor coping strategies. So mm. the, the common one, like I always keep mentioning is, you know, drugs and alcohol in the mix or very unhealthy relationships or impulsive, risky sexual behaviors. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it's something where the, the classic old school used to be if someone's been let's say, sexually assaulted, then they become sexually promiscuous. And yeah. we also start like, you know, doing the slush shaming or berating, but it's really someone's trauma and how they're trying to deal with it. Mm. And it's, it's, it's funny because trauma is one of those things that's so insidious and slow seeping that usually you use some of your trauma and try and flip it in a positive in the way you interact with other people. Mm. So people who have been in like a very, um, let's say a DV relationship, controlling dad, mom was victimized. It's, this male comes out of it. And he's like, oh, I'm not going to be that person. But in his relationship, he's quite controlling. Might not beat someone, but, you know, might not hit them. But it's just, there's that edge of where it's yes. both the factors. You know, you see it pass on and he invariably passed that on. So it's mm. hard to pick, sorry. I guess it's, I'm mentioning a lot of things, but those are just the big ticket items that come to mind when you bring that up. Yeah. One of the things that I also found out, um, and I was like, oh, my God, am I super traumatized? Was... um. <laughs> the forgetful, you know, memory loss and stuff like that. Cause I'm very forgetful. And I think that's a way for me to cope. And it's like, okay, forget about the bad real quick. Yep. You don't have time to dwell on that. 
and keep it moving. You know what I mean? Positivity only. So it's like blacking out or blanking completely um, negative things altogether. So I don't know if that's going to like come out later on in life and I'm going to like lose my marbles. Um, If it's like hidden in there somewhere or whether it's an all right coping mechanism you tell us oh yeah that's getting a, a diagnosis yeah. right now yeah, yeah. I know, right? we love doing this on air <laughs> I'm free, I'm so yeah. you know, don't worry, i do mates rates today but, it's like, <laughs> but what i was going to say is you struck on quite a, a, a good note there so the first thing i was going to answer is a lot of ethnic or minority groups especially if you're in a country where you're a minority mm. you've already got these other things where that experience in itself can be traumatic just being mm. a minority so we always talk a lot in psychiatry circles how immigrants have a higher uh, capacity to develop mental illness or drug and alcohol issues. Mm-hmm. And even if you haven't had come from a you know, Sudanese background or where there's like genocide or things of civil unrest, even if you come from somewhere like Zimbabwe, Zambia, before the Mugabe, the Dam, you come across immigration and being a minority is a stressful experience. Mm-hmm. We're just sort of fighting the status quo, whether it's white supremacy groups, systemic racism, you say whatever it is, colorism, you're fighting that already as a minority. So a lot of us are naturally, I think we normalize trauma. So to add on to you, AD, it's, it's interesting. Where a lot of people do question with the minorities, like maybe I this and that, because you just under fire for more sides. So it's hard to realize. And some of it could be actually your response to that. Um, yeah. Moving on, the next thing you mentioned about memories and forgetting. Usually we talk about uh, suppression and repression of memory. Yeah. So it's actually a coping strategy. And it's a way, I like saying coping strategies they're not necessarily either bad or good. There's some that are better than others, but it's a way that your brain manages to move on. So let's say if you've had a really bad encounter, say your, your boyfriend hits you and it's really traumatic, if you keep re-exploring that incident, it starts stressing you out a lot more. So in your mind, you dim it out, forget and say, you know what, maybe, maybe it was me, whatever, eh, moving on, let me go with the girls, get on mm-hmm. my life, get sleep better, and you really suppress it or repress it. So, you know. When you're suppressing it, you're sort of like uh, consciously shutting it down. But when it's repressed, it's just your brain subconsciously doing it. Mm. And yes, sometimes it will come back to get you later. That's why psychiatry is quite interesting. Yeah. <laughs> whenever you know, I do a bit of like therapy with clients. So the first time you touch on those little tendrils, because I know what to pick for. It's yeah. like, oh, that was uncomfortable. Uh, thanks, Dr. Mulenga. I'm good now. You, you have a <laughs> later. Later. <laughs> And and you're I, like, now like, we just got started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you always have to leave them that open door policy. Like, listen, mm. in case I don't see you again. No, 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 it's okay, man. In case I don't see you again, here's my number. Here's our get back with us. Mm. More than happy to help you if things fall apart again. Because mm. in my mind, I know that we've just touched it. But you have to make them feel like coming back isn't like, oh, I messed up. I'm back. I'm sorry. I should have listened to you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, you do think that when someone does go, I think, oh, yeah. Two months, maybe that one, three months. Uh, oh, they'll maybe, be back. Maybe. Yeah. So yeah. People always come back. And I think um, just to wrap it up in a nice way is when those memories do come up, it's actually maybe at a better time in your life to cope with these strategies. Maybe mm. you're, um, are you got your own independence? You're living independently out of that stressful household or relationship. Mm. Have you got financial security to then be able to gain therapy? So people then can explore that side that have been repressing because they'll notice these sort of um, negative aspects of their life that have been accumulating, you know. And some people, it does come back to bite you. You come back, and next thing you know, ten years ago, you were beat, this boyfriend beat you, but it comes up in your relationship with your nice, loving new partner. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, so many small things, it's not really his fault, and you just, you know, so yeah. it's, it's different. It's hard to pick a, a one generalized example, but that's yeah. No, that 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 was a great response. Um, Rashani, did you have something? I think. Rashani? Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's really, yeah, uh, in terms of the, I guess, susceptibility you were talking about, Xavier, particularly for migrant and refugee, um, you know, people, particularly in a, a white dominant space, um, you know, when you talk about the susceptibility, there's also that taboo nature within particular ethnic and, and cultural groups, um, particularly around mental health and and even trauma. What, what does that look like navigating, um, you know, that taboo nature whilst also experiencing these things yeah that is it's quite difficult you know because a lot of us um i guess to start and i always had giving some background but when you think about mental health or psychiatry in general these are things that were developed in europe you know some mm. quite western influenced even though i like i do agree with the theories and they're onto something but each culture has developed their own ideas of it, you know? Yeah. Um, exactly. It's just like, so Western culture, we've sort of had maybe a more elaborate, expansive, all these therapies, medications and research, et cetera, et cetera. 
But for a lot of us, the stigma usually comes from a lack of fully understanding what's going on. So mm. mental illness, even things like suicide have been happening for centuries. These are not new things. And each community has developed their own idea of what that is. Mm. Sadly, for a lot of our you know, ethnic communities, it's usually been negative. You're the mm. less capable person. Mm. You know, uh, I remember even back in high school, we had a friend who committed suicide. And I thought he was the happiest guy I knew. You know, mm. um, yeah. But then I remember I discussed with my friends like last year. And one of my friends, you know, just like me, were educated guys. You know, just like, nah, that guy was mentally weak. You know, and I was thinking, wow, is that what we put that experience to? What we think, yeah. It's just, it, especially suicide. People get angry with you, like, you coward. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what? Saying you're weak and stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's mixed emotions. And like, uh, yeah, Roshani, yeah. if you answer the question, I think whenever I encounter people coming from that space, usually any space really, because every culture, even like you find white Australians have got their own ideas about what mental health looks like. I have to be very respectful for where they're coming from. Because I'm just coming here and I can't be like, hey, listen, what you know is wrong. I have to see what the understanding is. Mm-hmm. And then if I can incorporate it in the culture aspect, I, I do, you know, but otherwise yeah. I try to bring it out to a neutral space. Like this mm-hmm. these symptoms. Sure, you're saying like, oh, I can't be depressed. What's going on with me? Then, as I, then I'll say maybe I think you're depressed. But instead of putting this tag that you find such a negative association to, yeah. let's put it to the side mm-hmm. and let's just start doing, you don't sleep well. You're drinking too much. Yeah fighting with your mom I said let's let's let, you know and those are things when you make it a bit more bite-sized people can get through it a bit better but overall the problem with the stigma and the taboo of it is that people don't reach out for professional help mm. so that's what I find is the biggest problem and I find lots of minority groups coming to mental health services quite late in the game yeah. they're playing catch-up when this field that they know nothing about is new to them it's scary and you're mm. being for it's, it's always a difficult encounter but it, it works out in the end for lots of people yeah so very optimistic when they do come but it's, yeah yeah they knew better if they knew better if they maybe knew a bit more and they were less afraid they might come earlier and then that's a that's better to work with someone comes earlier than later yeah and do you, do they usually come like end up with you because of a circumstance that led them there um oh. and and yeah Oh, that's so, and, and then you get insight from these mm. cultural, these ethnic people about why it took them so long. To- oh, yes. Oof, I tell you, like, it, I think psychiatry is one of those uh, specialities where usually people come to you against their will. Mm. <laughs> you know, if, if you break your leg, you're like, oh, I need to go to EDC, orthopedic surgeon. If you have a heart attack, cardiologist, you wouldn't question that. Right. If you think mm. you're depressed or you're drinking too much, like, I don't know, I'm not going to stress that. I don't, I don't need to see a psychiatrist. It's always, so usually what happens is I've got someone, a family member, a partner, or a sibling dragging this person in. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it is almost dragging them in. Or they come in these really <laughs> big situations where the ambulance and police have been called in and they're brought into ED as involuntary patients. I get mm. two in the morning like, what? Sorry, they're having Christmas dinner and then they try to stab each other. Sorry, a family. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's very it's very real wow. um you know it's interesting you just mentioned a myth, a myth that you like of um in that industry what people think of psychiatrists and we're going to get to that later um in the episode we're going to be doing some myth busters um but ad had something and then we're going to go to a break yeah. i say um in terms of psychiatry and, and seeing a counselor and stuff um, as an ethnic person do you think um it's worthwhile investing in a counselor that has an ethnic background or mm, good question. is any counselor or will any counselor do type thing? Yeah. So obviously um, I think if you, it depends what that means to you. I find space in the sexes. So women always usually want to have a counselor from their own background, but a lot of men say, get me anyone who's not from my culture. Mm, so I find in minority group. So even for like myself, when I was seeing my therapist, you know, because we I've been having therapy for many years, you know, and I remember when I first chose the therapist, I was like, mm, can't be black. And I think it's just that whole thing of men being vulnerable to our own people. Yeah. But so if that doesn't work for you, go elsewhere. But if you really are thinking that someone from a similar culture would understand you better, it's always worthwhile having a look. But the caveat to that is, is there are not many of us. They really mm. are, you know. So some people say, oh, I'm going to wait until one becomes available and I say that's probably not a good idea 
Till yeah. my son becomes a, yeah. a doctor, then I'll go see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait a couple of years. Anyway, you'd be like, you think you already know what's best. <laughs> I actually yeah. recall you saying in The Sounds of Healing, um, you said it's better to start the process with someone, at least perhaps someone that's maybe got that cross-cultural training. Mm-hmm. And then um, when, you know, someone of your preference comes up then to make that switch which I agree because then that way you're, you've started the journey yeah. um, we're going to go to a break now we'll be back um, to kind of dig into the alcohol and drug addiction side of things um, you're listening to Soul Dive with AD Rashani and Lydia and we're joined by Xavier Malenga you are listening to Brimbank Live with thanks to the city of Brimbank across our neighbourhood and the world Soul Dive with AD, Rashani and Lydia on Brimbank Live on Live FM. Good morning and welcome back. You guys are listening to Soul Dive. You're joined by Lydia, Rashani and AD. We have Xavier here, Xavier Mulenga. He's um, a psychiatrist in training and today we've been chatting about generational trauma. Um, we, we're supposed to be speaking about a few other things, but just because we there's just so much to cover, <laughs> you know, we're almost at the end of our show, but we're going to get straight into um, alcohol and drug addiction because my understanding is is that it plays a significant role in this conversation of trauma and generational trauma. Um, so Xavier, yeah, could you, I guess, how could we start this conversation about alcohol and drug addiction? Well, I think it's just thinking about how commonplace it is, you know, because mm-hmm. some people think uh, alcohol, drugs and alcohol addiction is this very hardcore, you're injecting heroin or you're drinking like two bottles of wine a day. And I would say there's so many levels before that. You know, it's very, it's very insidious. You know, you go from having like, oh, one glass of wine every second night with a meal to having an extra one when you're a bit anxious. Oh, I can't sleep. And then next thing you know, you've, you've got this bottle a day habit. But it is quite common and pertinent when we talk about trauma because it's mm. one of the more common ways that people with trauma are trying to self-regulate. So I always talk about when people have uh, experienced trauma, generational or otherwise, they have problems regulating their emotions. Like those being very anxious, peaked yeah. up, and sleep and drugs and alcohol have just always naturally over the years been something that people lean towards you know mm. and i always tell people it's always more of a problem i think if you think you have a problem with drinking then you more than likely do or if someone's mm. told you you have a problem then you more than likely do mm. uh, but usually the main things i say is is it affecting your ability to work engage with other people and just function in your day-to-day tasks like your minimum get up clean the house whatever your role is if it's affecting all the, one of all those, then you might have to consider the substance you're using or drinking. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think we were just discussing this in the break, but I guess the culture of drinking, particularly in Australia, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, people drinking socially, like it's just such a common thing, just like having a beer with your mates or like, you know, having, uh, you know, lots of parties going on. And so that's just the natural thing that you do. Um, how does, I guess, social drinking, um, particularly drinking, come into play when it comes to um, substance abuse? Oh, yeah. So usually it's, it's I think if, you, if you've been working drug and alcohol for so many years, I can sort of see the subtleties. It's hard mm-hmm. to to see it unless you're, unless you're looking for it. So you're right. In a culture like uh, Australia or like almost every culture, except if you're talking like very hardcore, uh, maybe I say, Middle Eastern Muslim cultures, but even then there's hidden drinking. So, you know, it's everywhere, yeah. essentially. Right. But what happens is you have people who in social spaces, it's all natural. We're going to drink at least one wine, a cocktail. So everyone's got a rough idea. We're going to drink a bit. And usually mm. alcohol is used in celebrating when someone's died, when you've got a promotion, mm. when you're bored, when you can, use, you can drink for any reason. So mm. social drinking can become as frequent as you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. Notice are the steps that are a bit tricky in social drinking. It tends to hide people with problematic drinking behaviors. Mm. So, you know, I think there's always that, just think about your friends when you go out and you drink. There's always that person who's always pouring that next second glass to first. <laughs> and there was like this nice way of saying like, oh, yeah. who, who's next? <laughs> Yeah, always that friend everyone's like i'm still on my first chill <laughs> you think too slow you joke about it but then you yeah. you watch over time that might be the person is it how many times have you helped that person mm. home mm. or they got into issues with usually for women it's it's, it's quite bad because you know until i started doing my addiction training i always thought if you're the same body mass men or women if you're drunk drink for drink you're okay mm. but studies show time and time again that alcohol impacts women a lot more so obviously, when women get really intoxicated, they go to blackout quicker. 
they have problems with liver damage quicker than guys, you know, so it's actually affects them more. And usually if you're very vulnerable, lots of men, lots of, you know, rape culture, you talk about sexual Mm, assault. You're getting in those situations, even if you're not drinking like every day, every time Mm. you drink is an incident. Yeah. It's itself a problem, you know. So holistically speaking, women are more risk when it comes to, yeah. Thank you for the stats. AD? Um, this is in reference to you saying, um, you know, whether addiction affects your everyday life, um, you know what I mean? Identifying it mm. by whether you still show up to work, wake up in the morning and all that. Yeah. But what about functional addicts? Mm. Mm, let's talk about that. Yeah. So that <laughs> in my mind, complete myth. It's just something I, and let me say, let me say that with the caveat. So I guess functional addict is that person who, you know, drinks, let's say a bottle of wine a day but they drink after work, they come to work on time, still get their jobs done, mm. sort of okay parent or husband. And that's our mind of a functional alcoholic. They've never been arrested for drink driving or whatever. Mm. So people have this notion that they're still functioning. Usually they're not, you know, it's like, it's, I think in people's mind, it's like when you think you're not drunk, then your friends are like, oh, you were pretty drunk last night. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, I, I booked the Uber, I got us home. Like, yeah, but you were. <laughs> So it's, so you have to ask, you have to ask more, you have to scrutinize it a bit more. Mm-hmm. So when they say, I guess, I guess I was thinking more because alcohol, yeah, it's yeah. very obvious. You know what I mean? Like you right. can't really be drinking driving. What about things like marijuana, cannabis, mm-hmm. um, people mm-hmm. who smoke all day, every day and use it as a creative process or whatever. And they are happy to go out and they still socialize. They're not withdrawn. They can eat fine. They sleep fine. They wake up fine. Yeah. That kind of um, addict. Yeah. yeah, let's let's talk about this. But, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah let's say cannabis side of that's of addict. That's probably what they're telling you. You know, it's like because when I see people like that idea, like I'm smoking, everything's okay. If you look at the productivity, let's talk about musicians. So we always talk about the stoner musician. Oh no, stoner musician. He smokes a fair bit, but he's an artist, a guitarist, a creative mm-hmm. space. If you actually ask the company and look at his actual production work, whether it's his, is he doing digital design? Is he actually a musician? What's his music output? How many shows has he done? How many of those have translated to gigs while heavily smoking? You find that it's actually, you know, the thing <coughs> where it actually inhibits you quite a fair bit. Mm. So we, do, like, uh, we have this one called a motivation syndrome. So usually just you know, your career progression stands to still that very bad in relationships because everything's just blase. You know, and people think like that's oh it's okay, not hurting anyone, they're creative, that's okay. Yes. Is it really though? You know? Yeah, it makes me think about um the fact that there's a spectrum of functioning mm-hmm. well and you might be functioning well at the sixty percent mark, but really there's you have that forty percent that where you could be functioning much better and, and people see the sixty and they're like, That's good. So they mm-hmm. just think that it's you know. And and I think as well, we always have to I always have to tell people that we've just normalized sub-optimism, you know, and especially like in minority groups, we, we normalize um, just just really, really abusive traumas. So let's say back home in, in Zambia, we have a common term where, you know, domestic violence is quite rife, you know, mm. but then there's there's this, there's a guy saying where like, if a woman's complaining with you, you even tell them like, you're even lucky I don't beat you, you know, other guys beat. That's how common it is. <laughs> it's just a joke where you laugh about it, right? Then when I leave Zambia and I look back, I'm like, Damn, that was, that's a really dark joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you like okay? Is that a so we accept that we're accepting this subpar? Mm. I think mm. the human potential, and I think especially in minority groups, we're used to just being under. So mm-hmm. we, you know, we're just used to oh, you're not, you're not dead. You're healthy but enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, enough, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So I do think that functional addict thing? It's. I've never agreed with it because everyone I've spoken to, and I guess I have very candid discussions with people. And the good yeah. thing in psychiatry is people tell you things they won't tell their partner, mother, or priest. So you end up becoming mm. a person who knows a lot about people. Mm. And they might put off this persona that they're functioning well, but you have to put it under more scrutiny. Look at them over a five-year period. Was there any potential that they could have had past that? That's yes. Yeah. Mm. That's you know? good. Yeah. yeah. Shani. Um, you know, in terms of, I guess, addiction, particularly around substances, um, I think that there's also, you know, like, for example, if somebody has, um, you know, a long-term injury that they have and they are using, like, pain medication, um, what's the line between, I guess, dependence on a drug and then that falling into addiction? 
or it's such a thin line because yeah. like I'm in pain clinics and I swear mm. you know, when you're working with a pain physician and addiction specialist we sort of might see the same person in two sides like I might say mm. I think we're giving this person too many painkillers I think this person is really hooked it's not helping them mm. and the pain specialist to say like no look it's is that an injury it's chronic pain and they're subjectively telling me they're in pain we we have to treat this mm. right. and I think it's a it's a it's a very hard line but they're there's a very high uh, comorbidity and relation, right? So mm. a lot of people, when you, before, we used to have a very simplistic understanding of pain. And it'd be like, okay, you've got an injury, painful, it's chronic, we should give you some medication to work on that. And that mm. was it. But obviously people got dependent, we got opioid crises, people overdosing, and we realized that that can't be the only way. So now, like I used to work at pain clinic at Royal North Shore Hospital, and it was essentially, we'd have a psychologist, mm. a dietitian, uh, there's a physio, you know, so we talk mm. about everything else yeah. before we talk about the med- medications. Yeah. The point, yeah. Where, point where we have to motivate them somewhere. Someone says they're drinking heavily and they're mm. still extra pain meds. We say, no, you're drinking too much. You have to, they sort of, it's so more strong arming people, but ultimately you get them to have better habits that we work to help that pain get better. Mm. But it's, it's a very thin line, like addiction. Yeah. It's, oh, it's so tight. AD has something. To I was going to just throw something random out there. Yeah, you know, I saw that cheeky people smile. Use, <laughs> people use marijuana um, as pain medication as well. Mm. Would you recommend the herb or painkillers if you had to? Ooh, that's a... That's a, that's a well, uh, you're going on record I, here. I, 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 you know, the way I would sit on the fence with that is like, I've had more experience with medications than with the herb. And I think... In Australia, it's not really been legalized properly. Mm. Like when you say herb, yeah, everyone's sort of smoking the amount they feel is right to get over that pain, you know? So mm. kind of hard to quantify. I know right. we've trials with medicinal marijuana in Australia now, but it's still quite early days. Mm. And I find that usually, not everyone, but a lot of people I've seen who, who use like, you know, marijuana to help with pain and things like that. If they don't have really good other pain coping strategies, they just end up smoking a lot more and you become dependent because people think you can't get dependent on cannabis, but you can. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to quickly touch on this, that sort of sneaky nature of cannabis, um, but we have to go to a break guys. And um, we'll be back. You're listening to soul dive with AD Rishani and Lydia. We're joined by Xavier. Um, and yeah, we're, t- we're discussing generational trauma, alcohol addiction and um, drug addiction. You're listening to Brimbank live. With thanks to the city of Brimbank across our neighbourhood and the world, Soul Dive with AD, Rashani and Lydia on Brimbank Live on Live FM. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Soul Dive with AD, Rashani and Lydia. We are joined by Xavier Mulenga. He has graced us today. We're speaking about generational trauma, alcohol and drug addiction. And we're about to have a quick little um, segment on uh, Mythbusters. We want to address um, some, I guess, misconceptions in his field. Um, But before we do that, just to wrap up on the conversation of drug addiction, we were speaking specifically about cannabis now. And I guess um, Xavier gave us that um, uh, figure, which was that um, in the the break, which is that apparently it's the most used um, drug. I guess what I wanted to ask. So the legal one is cannabis, uh, sorry, alcohol and tobacco, but yes. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask, I guess, um, you know, with alcohol, like alcoholism, when you get drunk, you get drunk. There are very visible effects as even the next day for a lot of people. Um, I think with cannabis, it seems to a bit be a bit more one of those drugs that you can kind of incorporate into your daily life without it really interfering in, in the same way that alcohol would if you, um, I guess, consumed it that regularly. What's the sneaky nature around or, you know, the dangerous sort of line between healthy consumption and not yeah so yeah exactly so there's some people it depends on so many things a usually I ask people how much are you using or better still why are you using it mm. um, and what's your relationship with cannabis I know Lydia and you and I have talked about this I always ask people what's your relationship to your drug of choice it's yeah. a good question um, but it's good to know what they think of it if they tell me that oh no it helps me sleep or study relationships <laughs> Then I'm like, oh, it's covering quite, it's doing a lot for you. And itself, that means maybe it's just the way you're coping with everything. Mm. But usually what I tend to do is ask people how much they're smoking and whether they know the strands. Because, you know, some people just smoke whatever they're given. 
But there's some, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the more THC you have in the cannabis, that's the more psychoactive element of it. Mm-hmm. The more actually you could have, um, you know, develop psychosis, anxiety. So everyone knows they've taken a batch, which would make them paranoid. You're hearing mm-hmm. stuff it's like, oh, that's too heavy for me. Definitely avoid anything that makes you feel that way. Uh, but also if it's every day, I also question, I ask them strategically whether it's actually affecting other things. Yeah. I also ask them if someone else has asked you to stop. You know, that's mm-hmm. the key because you would be the last person to stop, you know. Mm-hmm. But it always becomes a, more of a problem when you have to smoke by yourself. You're always making sure you're talking to your dealer so you always have a supply on hand. Some mm-hmm. people have it in their purse. Some people have it at home. You've got batches everywhere. <laughs> they were running into a bit of problem. And when yeah. you ask them, when's the longest period you went without smoking? They're like, oh, I, I smoke every day. It's just like, you know. And they right. look at you and it sounds like it's almost a joke. But then mm-hmm. if you ask them to stop smoking for a week, they're like, no, I go crazy. Then I think, mm. oh, now we'll get a problem there because now yeah. your body's physiologically dependent and you're so psychologically dependent on it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, we're going to go straight to the Mythbusters now. We've got a few here. Um, <laughs> the first one is psychiatrists only want to drug you. Now, well, tell us what's up, psychiatrist. That, 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 I like to say 100% no. Let me speak for Australia because like, we're not big pharma like America so much. <laughs> okay. But, the, the caveat to that is by the time people see a psychiatrist, they're usually quite unwell and come quite late to the point mm. that medications would be, from our perspective, indicated. So every time you do meet a psychiatrist, if you've had trauma for years, depression for two years, then only because you're getting suicidal or you're drinking too much, you come see me. <laughs> you know, people get surprised mm. and say, listen, I think you're depressed for a long time. You should be on antidepressants. Mm. Like, hey, I just met you first time. You're drugging me. You know, mm. yeah. so that's what yeah 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 so, yeah. so usually what i do is i take a step back and give them a lot of information so you, we educate the people i said give them pamphlets to go home with give them some things to go read so that they can have when they're not fighting with me they can come back and say yeah, <laughs> okay let's give this a go you know yeah yeah um, i feel like psychology is maybe partly to blame for that myth because i mean i do have a psychology background and mm. the way that psychiatry is kind of painted from psychology's perspective, always kind of goes down that route of, you know, they only want to prescribe you with things. And I think Mm. that it is sometimes looking at where the patient is at and what stage they are at. And, you know, obviously that there are some cases where you do need to be medicated or you do kind of need that Mm. really, um, I guess, like hard help of medication um, to help get you out of that particular um, stance or stage. So yeah, for sure. I, I would, probably agree with you there but um I, I think there are a lot of misconceptions particularly around psychiatry and medication that just float around particularly in psychology so, and I just yeah. say thank you to our PhD community <laughs> psychologist for her Honestly. input <laughs> we love it we love it AD do you want to ask us yeah. the next one yeah I would also say yeah like I think with psychology you're like you can talk anything out so we don't really need medication do we mm. um and I lean towards that sorry yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> sorry psychiatrist um, big pharma paranoia you know just trying to drug us all i'm one of those conspiracy theorists okay whatever um okay. the next <laughs> the next question is it's easy to pick an addict from a crowd Ooh. i think uh usually if someone's really really dysfunctional and severe then yeah it is you know there's someone who's drinking during the day <laughs> yeah you know? Sometimes it's very easy. Someone trying to inject heroin on the train. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of uh, easier. I mean, that's not a laughing matter, but yeah. yeah. But you know, sometimes it's good to actually make it a bit jovial because we make it so taboo, we make it secretive. So in the future, yeah. I imagine we're going to have like healthy conversations around suicide, depression, and we can yeah. just joke about it. You know, we joke about so many other medical conditions. So mm. joke about it, but not diss it in any way but just make it normalized conversation yeah so it's very hard to spot most people that's why everyone always gets surprised i didn't know it was a drink alcoholic or I didn't mm. know. so it's it's actually hard and everyone thinks they're a detective but i think usually only the partner or the children living in that same household mm. are the ones who know what's going on really yeah because they tend to be yeah. habits or things to um that you can really hide i mean with effort but a lot of people tend to hide it pretty well um, the next one is it's easy to not get addicted to drugs. Ooh, that's uh, that's a loaded one. <laughs> oh, that's a loaded one. Uh, we've got no, no, three no, no. minutes. So, no, this is good. It's just got many uh, facets. You know, I think it's it's easy not to get addicted to drugs if you never take them. <laughs> you know, so we spoke about that person. <laughs> that person never drinks, never touches any drugs ever. 
stick. Mm. They'll, they'll, they'll pass them without. I that. think assuming you're you're using it to some degree, is it easy? Uh, oof, it depends on your background and, like I said, relationship to why you're using it. Mm. If you're using it as a crutch for everything, like your anxiety, you get depressed, you get a promotion, you lost the promotion, your girlfriend likes you, your girlfriend doesn't like you today, you know, if you're using it in that capacity, then mm. it's very easy to develop a dependence because you use yeah. it as more, you're putting what we call like this thing of salience where you're putting your drug of choice above everything else. Yeah. Mm. You feel so many needs. Like when you're codependent in a relationship, and you expect your partner to make you happy, do this and that for you, and really should be coming from yourself. Mm. Similar concept. Yeah, thank you. Right, and I heard something about um, dopamine being the main, um, what is it, chemical in your head mm. that attracts you to addiction. It's it's how it makes you feel at those specific times. Mm. Um, and you can get addicted to your phone. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be specifically a We job, are addicted to it. It's a fact. Yes. It's, it's done. Middle of the night, I'm like checking my phone. So that's not it. I think we all need um, psychiatry by that um, by that measure. Um, <laughs> yeah, last one before we wrap up. Um, we, we have one more minute. Actually, yeah, we'll go, we'll go. Um, everyone, no, not that. We'll do, we have two. So I'm going to pick between the two. Mental illness can be treated by your primary care doctor, your GP. For the most part, if it's mild or to moderate, a lot of GPs can manage it. It's okay. good to ask when you go to a practice which GPs actually have an interest in mental illness. Okay. Mm. And they usually, I find that lots of GPs who manage depression, anxiety, and even addiction problems quite well. But okay. when it gets above a bit, there's a threshold they have because they don't have all the time to do therapies or sometimes they're not really good with medications. They refer mm. onwards. But otherwise, seeing a GP, and I've seen many people, even friends, other doctors who've gone to a GP and managed to get their treatment from therapy and a GP and never had to see a psychiatrist. Okay, cool. So it's a good starting point for some and sometimes it's the ending point too. Um, You can resolve it there. Beautiful. That brings us to the end of this show. Um, I've had such a great time. I'm also low-key like bummed that it's the end of the show. I think we're going to have to bring you back one day, Mm -hmm. Xavier. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on Soul Dive. Um, You guys have listened to AD Rishani and Lydia. We've been joined by Xavier Mulenga. Um, He's a psychiatrist in training. And today we discuss generational trauma, alcohol, alcohol and drug addiction. And we also addressed a few misconceptions. Um, Thank you, Xavier. And we hope everyone has a great week. And weekend. (laughs) (laughs) With thanks to the city of Brimbank across our neighbourhood and the world, Soul Dive with AD, Rashani and Lydia on Brimbank Live on Live FM. (laughs) 